Hello, and welcome to another edition of Kaleidoscope. This is Michael Zenon, recording from downtown Nicosia, and all the way from Bangladesh, we have with us Asma Khan. Welcome, Asma. Thank you very much. Asma, to introduce you to the listeners, you um, are a, one of the leading female chefs in the UK. You're also the owner of the Dajlin Express Restaurant in Covent Garden, and you also have... You're also a social mobilizer, you're a social activist because you want to change the system. You want to give a voice to the woman. And let's start from that point because the thing that I picked up in reading and hearing about you is that you're one of the only restaurants that has an all-woman team, all from South Asia, and all second daughters, or mostly second daughters. Yes, mostly second daughters. The thing is that uh, you do find restaurants uh, which are like social enterprise or charities, uh, destitute women, women who are, you know, have been trafficked and then they, they put together in a charity and they cook. So it's at that level you will find women cooking together in my part of the world, in South Asia. In everywhere, in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, you will see a woman, the matriarch, is either cooking or in charge of the food. So she's responsible for feeding everyone. The moment it comes to restaurants, even mid-range, low-range, forget about fine dining. You are not seeing women anywhere. In the East or in the West, all the food is being cooked by men. And this is why it is so shocking that I am the only female-founded, all Indian, you know, in Indian restaurant with all females cooking in the world. When the reality on the ground is we are the feeders, we are the nourishers, we are the healers. It is a woman in the house who is feeding everybody, who has an arm around everybody and is making sure everyone is fed. Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry to interrupt because women actually show their love to their family through the food they cook for them. Absolutely. All the love, go the love goes into the food and that's how they feel they nourishing their family in all the forms of nourishment, just in, not in terms of stomach. But I'll tell you one thing. This is all received happily where you don't have a bill to pay. The moment it is about paying women for the food that they're cooking, where are you seeing those women? They're nowhere. And this is what you know I want to change. And to some extent, I'm realistic enough to know by all this activism, disruption, conversation, even this conversation that you and I are having. What we are doing is we're sowing the harvest. We will never reap. We will never be there to see the harvest or enjoy the benefit of the harvest. But a generation of women will come after us who will not face what you and I faced. And I think that is what I'm working for. Every day I live one day less. And this is what drives me. You know, it is very hard to work the way and the kind of way that I work. I run a restaurant, I do this, I do that. But it keeps me going. This is a fire inside me. You know, even when I'm dead, from my grave, <laughs> people will be able to say my name when they walk into a room and tell a landlord, I want to open a restaurant. I have an all-female kitchen. I'm a female founder. I will be Asma Khan. I will be better than Asma Khan. And she will. I'm clearing the pathways for the women who are coming after me. So it's, you know, it is, 
un, I, I don't feel happy when I think that I'm the only female who's in this position right now. I hope I live long enough to see women surpassing me, all the achievements I did. I want to live to see that. I want to applaud women doing greater things than I ever did. But no, I agree with you that I we. I, I agree with you that we, you and I, on that in that position because I remember. In 2013, I was the only we. There was a community radio station launched in Cyprus by a. It was actually inspired by Achana Kapoor. She's a media person in India. And I was the first woman doing stories about women and having women guests. And it was so easy to get women to speak because no one was asking them. Yeah. Who was I? I was a little person in Cyprus that had just done this as a passion. And I was getting Nobel Prize novelist, um, um, laureates. I was getting big names saying yes easily because they weren't being asked by the main mass, mainstream media. It's sad. Fortunately, it's getting better. Okay, I think COVID helped that. But it's we we are front runners, but hopefully it won't be. It will carry on. It'll get better and more broader. Um, tell me what brought this on. What brought on? Um, the the combination of cooking and empowering women? I think it wasn't that I thought about this before. This has evolved. It has been very organic. So there wasn't a great plan. Uh, I can easily say that now, but that's that would be incorrect. There wasn't a great plan to have an all-female kitchen, to, to get involved in activism. I always was very driven by the idea of being on the right side of history. I was very inspired by my history teacher. I was only eight years old. She came to class and gave all of us leaflets of how slaves were being advertised to be sold in America. And you know, in the 1980s, you thought America was this land of milk and honey. And you know, everyone wanted to go to America, and that's where you got McDonald's and it was this kind of aspirational place. And then I realized that this is pretty recent, that there were people there buying people to work as slaves. And that shocked me. But I realized one thing, that it takes one woman to say, I'm not going to get off my seat on the bus. And eventually segregation ended. Slavery ended. Colonialism ended. Maybe one day occupation will end too. You just need to be brave and speak mm. up. So. From a very young age, this really inspired me that whatever I do in my life, I'm going to make things better for other people because I'm very privileged. I'm educated. You know, I'm, I'm relatively wealthy. I have all the good things in life. I've never gone to bed hungry. I'm going to make sure that I speak up. I speak up and I never am afraid. I will never lose courage. So this is what drove me. And of course, you know, when I thought I was going to cook, I was cooking more out of a sense of trying to get people to heal. So it was not political then. It mm. became political very quickly because I realized that this is a battle cry for equality, for justice, and also for the kinds of women who were now cooking in my kitchen. I understood what it is to be uncelebrated, unloved. Mm. Many of them seven daughters, you know, second daughters. So, and also unpaid for cooking. They never thought that they had the skills that were worth any money. Because in our culture, and this is across 
you know, I'm sure this is true mm. in Cyprus, it's true in Italy, in Ireland. In these agrarian cultures and traditional cultures, women eat last, they serve the men. Girls eat least. The whole idea that the men are given the choicest pieces of meat, the men are the ones who we will serve. This whole patriarchal way of feeding is so ingrained in us that this is what we always see ourselves. And this is a double-edged sword because you can see this as you know, a chore and a domestic slavery of cooking. You can also see it as a way of empowering yourself, turning it on its head and using food as a conversation to talk about justice and power. Food cooking is also therapy. Yes, it is. It's I... also therapy for yourself. In cooking a meal, you're also putting the process, the love you put in, what you choose to do. And my mother was a great cook. The easiest thing for me to do was invite my friends over for dinner because she was self-taught. But she cooked everything and anything from Japanese, Chinese, Japanese, um, Italian, whatever food. She, she cooked everything and she cooked it well. Um, and I could see that when she, because it wasn't easy, she was also in 1946 shipped off from Cyprus to Africa, arranged marriage with my dad in the middle of nowhere, no telephones, that wasn't that easy. So I'm sure um, cooking was actually a way of her bringing her mother back, of joining her with her family, and therapy, it's healing in itself. Yes, and, and I tell people who, you know, come to buy my cookbook or come and talk to me about what they cook. I said, just one thing I want you to remember, step back and understand this. The most expensive ingredient you're putting into a dish is your touch and your time. Every other ingredient, be it saffron, be it the meat, be it lentils or anything else that you're putting into a dish, you can buy again in the bazaar. But that time and your touch and your sensibilities that you're putting into a dish this is your gift to whoever would eat this dish. And the moment you step back and do that, that's when you slow down and you appreciate and you take your time because this is not some kind of crazy race. This is meditation. It is also exactly. service. It is prayer. Mm. You know, it is a way of, of, of actually healing yourself when you cook. Absolutely. I always thought of it that that is my, for my mother because she was really one of... I still, I mean, she's passed away over 20 years ago, and people still say to me the one memory they have of her is what a wonderful cook she was, the wonderful food she used to put on the table. But let's, the other good, the other thing that you are different with in your restaurant is that you all get the same salary. Yes. Yes, I, I think that's Okay, and this fair. is quite revolutionary. Yes, it is. I think it's revolutionary beside, despite the fact that I agree with you that it's fair. No, it, it is revolutionary because there's always been, and not just in restaurants, everywhere a hierarchical way of paying people. And inevitably, women get paid less. Women of color, men of color get paid less. Um, mm. You know, we have different kinds of opportunities. If you are accented, uh, you know, you're dark-skinned, you have your opportunities are different. Your promotion is different. You're left out of email chains. All of this is happening all the time. This is gaslighting. Big time. Yes. But I, from the time that I started, I looked at myself when I was cooking in the kitchen and my kitchen porter, who is male, we have a kitchen porter who's male, from Ghana. And if I paid him less than myself, what I was telling 
the whole world, and more importantly to myself, is that my one hour was more valuable than his one hour, even though he was working four times harder than me. He was washing pots, he was doing heavy scrubbing. All I was doing is mixing masalas and you know putting some spice in and I was cooking. And I just thought, this is not gonna work. So while I'm in the kitchen and everyone who's in the kitchen, when they're working in the kitchen, they will all get paid the same hourly rate all the service charges are divided equally across the board. Obviously, none for me because I should not take it. But everybody else gets the service charges. But everyone is done equally, including the, the kitchen porter. But this is so important to recognize that when the plate comes in front of the customer, at least eight people have been involved, including the kitchen porter, who will wash the plate twice. Once before it went to you and once when it comes back. And all this humming and hawing and edible flowers and ego trips of chefs about how great they are would come to nothing if there was a smear of dirt on that plate. They would have all those reviews about how dirty that place was. Mm. How are you not recognizing that you are not the architect of your own success? All chefs are obsessed about their creativity and how smart they are. And, you know, I made this beautiful orange out of, and it's full of meat. So what? Big deal. You know, mm. you are not, you are supported by endless number of people in a stainless steel empire, which is your kitchen, mm. with all these gizmos and toys that you can play around with. I'm not impressed. I am not impressed. I want to know what is your weight structure. I want to know, you tell me the distribution of men and women in your kitchen. I want to know whose positions of power, who mm. are the first quarter of the list of people who are powerful in your, in your kitchen. I want to know how many women there are in that. Are they not just the women who are, you know, greeting guests, you know, the, the pastry chef? You know, I don't want to know that there are token women around. I want to know the women in positions of power. Absolutely. I want to know that decision equality. makers. Yeah, that's the that is the game changer. You don't just need to have women in the kitchen. You share a lot of conversation, oh, we need to have more women in the kitchen. You need to have more women who can kick ass. You don't mm. want more women in the kitchen who are just going to be hanging around getting bullied and pushed into corners by men. Because this is like the worst thing that you can do. You put a girl or a woman into that position, which is so unfair because you break their dreams. People lose them, they're hemorrhaging. It's like a brain drain. You're hemorrhaging Absolutely. people who are empathetic, who are kind, who are passionate. You crush their who are dreams. badass. Yeah, and you crush their dreams and they will not come back to the kitchen. And we are worse off because of that. But I'm, I do a lot of activism about including women in peace processes. And it's exactly what you said. It's not just bringing in, them in to write the notes or make the coffee or just to be there. You want them there to kick ass. You want them to have a real contribution to the conversation. Or else what you're doing is crap. It's worthless. Yeah. You have to break the mold of what you're doing. It's only with that break in the mold that you actually will have a difference and you will have a better chance of what you're doing being sustainable. And I think that it is also something that we need to work across borders, across cultures, skin tones, accents, because this is not a fight where this is just isolated to where you are at any given time. This has to be global. This has, it to, has be, to be. Yeah, and it has to be like something that we find strength in uniting with each other 
Because also, I think that we need to have men as allies. This cannot be about us and them. I strongly feel that you need empathetic men Feminist on our men. side. Yes, and I, I have some of the people who have helped me a lot in my career have been men. And you know, I think that these, this is also something that's important that we should raise boys to respect women and those that are around us who want to be on our side. We should hold hands with them as well. Because this a, is a lot of these a lot of these men already on our side, they don't know they are. So we yeah. actually need to bring them forward. I was having a conversation the other day with the Matt talking about equality and women in the peace process. And I said to him, we don't just need women. We actually need men that are feminists or have the gender perspective. He, and he looked at me strange and I said, you know what? You don't need to be biologically a woman. You need the woman because you need to empower and uplift them. But you also need men who don't even know they're feminists to actually encourage the fact that this is happening, support it, in, um, broaden it. It's not that men are really, really important in this um, pursuit of a more sustainable, equitable world around us. And what happens in the food sector is one microcosm. It happens across the board and we don't realize it. That's why we need to jo join hands. Because I can help you and you can help me. Or I can learn from you and you can learn from me. Yeah, and I think that I, I feel that one of the kind of difficulties that we have especially in hospitality, is that, and it's not in, true of any other profession, the excuse that the kitchen is very pressured, that's a very tense environment, is given as reason why violence and bullying happens in kitchens. Imagine if this was a brain surgeon or a primary school teacher, a nurse during COVID time, the kind of pressure under which most people work in difficult places, underpaid, undervalued, stressed out, they would be would not be allowed to attack their colleagues physically, mm -hmm. sexually, in any way because they're stressed. All this excuse by males, all these men, I know lots of places I can send them to, in the mountains, to chill out and do yoga. <laughs> these guys need therapy, big time. They need to be therapy. Get out of the kitchen. You are not fit to be in the kitchen. I work in a kitchen. It is extremely stressful. I agree. Those three hours that people are there, it is frantic and no one is breathing. But my God, no one is shouting. No one is screaming. No one is throwing things across the kitchen. And the work gets done. We get the work done. And when someone, when we used to have an open kitchen, people used to say it was like synchronized, you know, diving. Everyone is moving around in a rhythm and a beat, this is what women do. We have a beat. If you and I stand next to each other, you start cooking. There is going to be a rhythm. This goes back to our ancient ancestors. We stand next to each other. We breathe, we beat, and the beat is there for both of us, even if we are cooking two different things. Absolutely. It is so fascinating when you watch women cook together. The unspoken language, the eye contact, the smiles, the banter, the laughter. This is the joy of cooking. How is anything beautiful that comes out of a kitchen, a Michelin star kitchen, I don't care which kind of kitchen, which has got such a toxic environment behind the walls. I don't want to eat that food.
And I think we should boycott places where you know bullying is happening, where you know women are not represented, and you know that women who work there were harassed. Don't put your money there. I totally agree. I think it needs to be exposed. I think it, we've got a name and shame. Yeah. Because it is, it is an environment that allows the bullying to happen because of the apparent stress. You've also, um, with doing what you do, you've also broken down what is technically a traditional Indian setup, societally setup, because you're quite patriarchal and status the statuses in the in India, and you are now working with women that, in other in another environment, you would not be friends with. Yes, uh, and the thing is that sometimes you know I I can have these conversations with Indians you know randomly, who tell me, oh this is not true. We we do you know meet other people. No, you don't. You know, and I have lived in India, so I know what it's like. It is deeply caste and class divided. You know, people will not hang around with people who are not from their same culture, background, and you will never definitely not have people in your house, sitting on your table, eating, who are, who are very different from you. Because one of the effective ways that the caste system worked is it banned people from eating with other people of different castes. And if a lower caste person even drank the water from the village well, and as you're drinking water, you can understand that the entire village well was polluted because they were so unclean. And people did not allow people of lower caste to take out water in a bucket and fill up their little pot to take home to drink water because their touch was unclean. So imagine that they were, of course, definitely not allowed to eat. You couldn't have that shadow. At the same them. time. And so this is this is the roots of division through food in my country. Yes. We are very different. We have women of all cultures and all backgrounds of different castes. You know, people also who've never eaten meat, who help to cook it. That this is the idea that I come from a country where people die of hunger. I think people's attitudes toward food should be, I'm so happy you are eating. I not in I am not going to be mean and hate you for because of what you're eating. I'm not going to lynch you because of what you're eating. And I will also not pontificate and give you advice on what you should eat. In this idea that you know I am superior because I'm vegan, I eat organic, I eat this, because you can bloody afford it. Excuse and this me. is your personal choice. I this is your choice, you eat what you want. Food has become weaponizing food is deeply problematic and in India it has been weaponized and I think that it's so important that women who come from very different cultures they all work in harmony in peace in my kitchen because for us we have a united you know, ambition and a united dream to see more women like us you know coming up all around the world of different cuisines. We want to see this. We want women to be celebrated because we know it's our lived experience. We know what it's like not to be celebrated, not to be acknowledged, not to be respected, not to be loved. It's the first time I've, you've actually put into words what I've seen around me but haven't actually, um, it hasn't fermented. The fact that we weaponize food, the fact that you 
our art with vegetarians and they look at you eating a kebab and whoopsie, why are you eating kebab? Why do I need to defend it? This why do I need to defend my and it's crazy. And I just think that, you know, the understanding that, you know, there are many, many families, not just in war zones, not just in famine, in many countries. And I may add, children in the UK, we have food poverty in a country, in a developed country like UK, where there are children who go to sleep hungry, where their families have to decide, are they going to put on the heating or are they going to eat? Mm. No one wants to discuss these issues. This is happening even in American families. It's happening everywhere. Absolutely. And there are food deserts, deserts in, you know, areas like in the American reservations, you know, where there are First Nation families, you know, in who don't, there's nothing to buy. You know, there are fried chicken places. There are no grocery places where you can go and buy fresh food. Mm -hmm. So poor areas will have lots of fried chicken places, but they will not have affordable healthy vegetables and fruits and mm. then you tell them eat fruits and vegetables where are they going to buy it from how and how can i afford it how can yes. they afford it how can they afford it and of course the other thing is that also to squeeze farmers who are everyone has to have the perfect you know shaped you know vegetable or fruit we throw away so much of food i don't That's i mean there's a our entire food system is broken and i like this thing people, that we throw away food is I, I get a, my yes. hair stands on end. I used to have a mother that used to say, you put it in your plate, you eat it. We don't throw away. What's left over, we, what's left over is what's for dinner tonight or for lunch tomorrow. Nothing gets thrown away. And I also, I came from a, a middle-class family, so it wasn't a question of money. It's a question of putting value that you don't throw food away because you're fortunate that you have food on the table. And, and the amount of food that is wasted uh, in, in, in England is staggering. And the thing is that just purely... Sorry, why is, why, is, why is it wasted? Do, do they throw away it because it's expired? Yes. Uh, people throw away food because they all have expired dates. Now a lot of supermarkets are moving that sell by date, eat by date. They, they also forget about food. And also, many of the stuff is sold to you in packets of three. Like a classic case, the peppers. We call them capsicum in India. Okay. But, you know, the peppers are always, they are sold in packets of three. People buy three. They eat one. They might eat two. One will rot. They'll throw it. Uh, a lot of food is just thrown away because it's expired. It's gone off. Or, uh, you know, just they bought it with the intention to eat, cook it, and then never did cook it. There are many, many reasons why Different families throw food away. But what I want to tell people first is, this is your money. Would I get up every morning, I'd roll a five-pound note and a ten-pound note, and would I flush it down the toilet? No, I wouldn't. But you're doing that when you leave food to rot in your kitchen, in your fridge. Do not shop. The whole idea that food is, it is consumerism. And that's yes, the saddest I have part to have everything. It's consumerism. You just buy everything because you are consuming. You're not valuing. You're not appreciating. And you are not absolutely in no way are you actually repaying or paying back into the earth that has grown this stuff. The fact that we just take and take and take. We are stripping the earth completely of everything. And, you know, 
in some of our lifetimes, we will see things that, you know, we took for granted disappearing. Mm. And it's, you know, and I was so overwhelmed when I saw over COVID where I think it was in Germany, you saw these wild boars running around the streets because people had, you know, just stopped disturbing them. And you had deers, you know, running through in Scotland. In, it suddenly you know, reparated. In, yeah. And, and the thing is that it healed. And in my very close to my family village, I used to hear as a child that you could see the mountains from here, but you could see nothing from where there was. It was just fog and, you know, murk around. During COVID, when all the traffic stopped, the mountains emerged. Absolutely. And I, and was I, I was telling was... all my cousins that go tell the headman, go and tell all the people in the council that they can leave this as a legacy for the next generation. Tell them to stop, you know, burning fossil fuel on, you know, on the streets. Tell them, you know, to reduce the number of times that, you know, cars make trips. Do something, do something. You will lose the mountain again. Mountain will stay where it is, but we are so arrogant Absolutely. that we will allow that mountain to go because we want to have our easy life. We want to consume at the rate that we do. And imagine they can see the mountains right now that we heard in our great grandparents' time. They could see the mountains. And over the generations, that mountain disappeared with all the pollution. I mean, I know that during COVID, because I am asthmatic during COVID, I had very few episodes of asthma because the atmosphere was suddenly cleaner. The air was clearer. And the thing is, we've lived it. We've mm -hmm. seen it. So, and yet, have we learned? Have we learned? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, in my country, in the UK right now, everyone's obsessed about, you know, we are possibly facing a recession. Everyone wants tax cuts. You know, we're talking about, you know, why is the price of gas so high? Why on earth are you using so much gas? You know, yeah. why are we burning gas at this? Why are we make why are we producing things that can be done more efficiently with less impact on the environment? The whole idea that the economy takes more precedent and more important than actually looking after the environment, no one wants to pay the price for no. looking at the environment. But when we're dead. We're leaving an absolute blackened earth for our children and grandchildren. Tell me, in India, do they use a lot of solar energy? They have started using. They have started using a lot more solar energy, and which completely makes sense. This place is so damn hot, but uh, it you know, and we've got sunshine all the time. I think there's, like, there's a like there's here. a push. There's a push, it's... but the problem is that most of the pollution. And the damage to the environment is being done by certain countries who are spewing out. And everyone feels that if they're doing it, why don't we, you know, why should we yes. be the people? And this is a really bad, damaging attitude. attitude. But, you know, you have this with kids, you know. Why am I having to wear my night clothes when he's still allowed to sit and watch television? But, you know, we're not kids. Mm. You know, you can set a good example you can do your little bit and maybe there will be a ripple effect and other people will do it. But this is a risk with India, that India verges, it swings between this whole idea of we're going to do a lot for the environment and then switches back to saying, why should we be the only one who's doing X, Y, and Z when someone else is I mean, doing what they China, like? China's one of the biggest uh, what do you, um, yeah, victims, not victims, they're the biggest consumers of... Uh, 
pollution, are they not? I think it's yeah. China that China's not doesn't do well with their carbon footprint. No, they don't do. But the thing is that you know, the advanced countries, uh, America, uh, you know, the UK, they've all gone through this. So yes. the thing is that there's a lot of blame to be spread out everywhere. You know, at the moment, you know, who's doing it? Yes, we should raise these questions with them. But you know, look at Australia's track record is shocking mm -hmm. on on the environment. Absolutely shocking, considering the ecosystem which they have. Absolutely, complete, totally arrogance by leaders on on what is happening around. The problem is that you know, too many bad examples of leaders, of blinkered people, who want to just benefit now, and don't have an idea of a legacy of leaving I, the clean earth behind. So. It's I mean, got a lot to do with businesses. If I've got the control of the money, why would I lose that control of the money? Uh, Cyprus. Cyprus is another country that should have been working with solar energy years ago. Like India, 360 days of the year, we've got sunshine. Why are we still using electricity? Why is, there, why is not every new building obliged that's going out, obliged to use solar energy and not the traditional methods? Because the electricity board, which is a semi-government, has got control. There's a private sector involved yeah. because they're making the price out of, they don't want to make solar energy accessible. The mechanisms, the machines used for solar energy, the panels, um, consumer friendly. So they're actually um, imprisoning you in using electricity. Whereas here we should have been the first country, one of the first countries. The Mediterranean is all, sunshine all the time, like India. Sunshine all the time. Why am I using electricity? It is the thing is that there's so much money involved in all the yes. long wrong industries as far as environment is concerned. It is standing up against the tide, but if enough of us do it, we can change things. And you know, in India, you find now there's a kind of very grassroots kind of activism on you know on encouraging people to eat millets. Yep. And it's a simple thing, but significant. I know this because I come from, my father comes from an area, his family, where I remember as a child seeing millet fields and wheat fields, the occasional wheat field. But what happened is that with the kind of huge arrival of fertilizers and mafioso fertilizer companies, uh, everybody was now growing wheat. Wheat requires substantially more water and is more fragile it yep. becomes very it hot it rots millet is is actually able to sustain a lot higher heat requires less water and can doesn't have disease yet people are all growing wheat and now you see girls who i never saw on the street so far out from their villages carrying that you know the pot on their head going to village further away to get water because the village wells have dried. And they are seeing this. I in my lifetime have seen this, that the wheat, growing of wheat in our area has destroyed completely the water level. And you have these girls going who are now one more vulnerable and they will never go to school ever no. because they will never come back in time to go to school. Because even however early they leave in the morning, they're not going to be back in time because they're traveling a great distance for water. And the water they're bringing is less because of the distance. 
So there's less hygiene. People can't wash. There are massive ramifications. Why are we eating? We need to go back to eating our ancient grains. Yep. The grains like of our bit. ancestors, which is also healthier for us. It has more vitamins. But I'm seeing this grassroots movement in India of you know, encouraging millet, talking about millet, talking about the ancient grains. So this is what encourages me that from and whichever angle, as long as you start the ball rolling and you start embracing the earth on which we walk, I'm some way still optimistic. Uh, maybe we will not leave it parched for the next generation. I just think what needs to happen is that we people need to be encouraged that they can make a difference, that even one person can make a difference. And people are not getting that message. I mean, you just need to look at Malala. Yes. She's one young girl that got shot. She was young and she's changed things. So we need to start believing that it doesn't matter what my neighbor is doing. I need to do what's right. And even if I've influenced one person, I've made a difference in the world. It's not easy though, because people are so used to this herd system. No, and also they I, don't want to stand out. And also I think that the damaging effect of social media where people live their life through the screen and through, you know, TikTok and you know, dancing on the street and it is reducing all our lives to some image on a screen. Mm. And meaningful change is not something you can TikTok. And I think that is a big problem. That they want instant gratification. Yeah, you know, I've done this and this is the result. Yeah. If, you know, like you know, I put my cupcake in the oven, it's come out, I've eaten it. You know, this is my cupcake. How great. Mm. And I, I bake this. This doesn't happen with the environment. Change is slow and it is gradual and it is sustained and you've got to be resilient. You've got to be a Malala. You've got to, you know, stand up to it. You've got to get your voice heard and amplified. Of course, it helped Malala a lot and many people were willing to amplify her voice. That yes. helped. So that is a big factor as well. So even if you cannot do anything else, you can amplify the voice of the weak, the underrepresented. So there are many ways that you can do this, but people want to lots of likes on their uh, you know, social media platform. Yes, they will make cupcakes and do stupid things. And this is a problem that we are, we are a society which is very shallow, but we are a society that also has amongst us people with compassion, with power, with resilience, with also their, a passion to change things in their lifetime. This may save us if enough of, of us get the platform to raise our voices and unite our voices, we will make a change. I know I probably sound like some crazy Indian hippie, but <laughs> I have faith. I have faith that change can... No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I have a lot of faith. If I just reach out and re touch one person, because I'm also, I'm also part of a few regional networks of women peace builders, I found that I've become so much stronger and so much more confident because I know there's sisters out there that will either hold my hand or ask me for advice or um, offer me a shoulder to cry on. I mean, there's someone around to support me, to encourage me, to empower me. So I found if we step out of our comfort zones and our narrow borders, it is very, very important if we want to get this message further. If we want to empower more people because sisterhood or humanityhood is very, very important. You've got to know you're not alone. 
And even if you are alone, you do have a support system. But it makes it makes a difference. And one of the things that I've been able to do, apart from you know, is a, is a, my restaurant. You know, which at the moment we are moving from Covent Garden to another location. Um, my restaurant has always been a place where women have always gathered, but it's also been a place where we have a very big uh, community of LGBT, uh, you know, people from mm -hmm. South Asian community who are who find it very tough because of cultural baggage that you know we have in our community about you know not accepting them, uh, and you know we have always embraced them, and you know we have them in our staff, but we also have them you know as our customers, mm -hmm. and we celebrate, and you know we acknowledge them and we love them and it is it's been really good because this is not you know how Daji Express began but we are now someone who people so many people come to our restaurant to celebrate uh, you know same-sex marriages they come to celebrate anniversaries people and they make it a point this has become a temple for people to come to to celebrate the fact that you are not judged, that you are mm. loved. And this is probably our greatest achievement, that from starting off you know, our journey and talking about empowering women and home cooks, this is broadening out into something much bigger. This is about all of us who are on the fringes of society. Yeah. For sexuality, for the color of your skin, your accent, your religion, your immigration status, the fact that you're so, a refugee. We are all the same. We are all in the Which a lot of us fame. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that is what I am now loving working with, that to go and find the marginalized, to go and find the ones who don't feel they fit in. I know mm. that feeling so well. And today, I mean, and I say this with no arrogance, you can mention my name or talk about my restaurant and most people will nod saying, yes, we know who that person is. And we changed this in five years by being resilient and being united. And I feel that if more of us do work like this and actually unite with other people and find common cause, we can really change things. And you know, I, I, I wanted to end our conversation because we've talked about all the depressing things and let's, I was about positive. to say the same thing. I was about to say the same thing. Let's have a positive. Because I've seen change. Yeah, I've mm. seen change in my in my in these five years that I've had a restaurant. You know, no one can now say, you know, or oh, oh, she's just a home cook. I'm I am a home cook, but not just a home cook. I am Darjeeling Express. And I I was told and I've seen some of your videos that you, whenever you put food on the table for your customers, you also tell them stories about the food. Yes, because I what think is your food what is food. one of your favorite stories? What is one of but, your favorite dishes? Well, I, I know I, you I must think, have a million favorite dishes, but no, but what I, is I something? Think, yeah, it is puchkas. What is called pani puri? It's called golgappas. It's got different names all around India. This is the classic street food. This is the great unifier on the street. All the Indians eat together. The cast and class and it's like a piece of dough, a bubble with a piece of dough that you fill with. Is that yeah, the one? With, yes, with the tamarind water. Yeah. But in in Calcutta, in Bengal, you find this rickshaw pullers who don't ride rickshaws. They actually physically pull like a cart. Someone sitting at the back. Uh, 
they they eat this standing next to someone who's come got off his mercedes to eat and you will find that the puchkawala who himself is poor will give free water in that water is ayurvedic salts the healing salts himalayan rock salts mm. which basically you know because when you perspire you don't just use lose water you also lose body salts mm. and for these rickshapulas when the sun is at its height that is when they are actually doing most of their work that's when all the customers want to take a rickshaw and not walk so it's this i tell the story of the poor i talk about the food of the poor the street food and how street food is all a, always about bangs for your bucks mm. when the poor eat you know i i'm so impressed by dishes that come out of the streets because this is bangs for your bucks on no stainless steel empire you know no endless number of chefs to help you or a kitchen pot to wash your pots this is really food of resilience and i will i have on my menu always a substantial number of street dishes but what is interesting is they are made by women who at some point in their lives lived on the street or sold this on the streets my team okay that's i mean that's lovely i think street food is such a big part of the culture we have occasionally in cyprus it's it's like street food we they collect in a park and there are different types of cooking which is very interesting and diverse you get to eat dishes you don't usually get to eat and it's usually the poor that share yes it's the poor that share it's not the rich that share and i don't want to be general i'm not generalizing it's every poor poor people because they know there's difficulty they know what it means to be without so they share more easily um i think we'd go on forever but i think this is a good note to stop on I also look forward to seeing you in Cyprus next month when you will be one of the keynote speakers at the Cyprus Forum. Thank you very much. You will be speaking you will be speaking on inclusivity and sustainability as well I'm assuming. Yes. Okay, so look forward to hearing you and perhaps also seeing you in person when you're in Cyprus. But I really enjoyed this conversation today and I'm really glad to see that there are a group of us and the group is getting bigger of reaching hands out of empowering the people around us and not being in, afraid to stand in front. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the listeners. Thank you and really thank you very much for making the time for me. Really really looking forward to meeting you when you get to Cyprus for the Cyprus Forum in September. Thank you Asma. Thank you. And have a lovely evening. You too. And if you want to send me a photograph a nice photograph of yourself the one that you like of yourself i'll do that i'll do that thank you so okay. much thank you thank you i can get the thank family you. back in the room come... now <laughs> okay get the family back in and have a lovely get yeah, together you bye. thank you asma bye bye bye, -bye.